G'day there, Magpie Army, and welcome to the third episode of our new podcast, a podcast currently known as Football Fountain. More on that shortly. I'm Adam McNichol, Head of Digital Content here at Collingwood, and I'm joined firstly by Stephen Riley, GM of Media and PR. Riles, welcome. Thank you, Adam. Also in the studio is Marcus Wagner, our Performance and Strategy Manager. Vargs, welcome. Thank you, Adam. It's great to still be going. We haven't been kicked off the airways yet, so episode three, who would have thought? Now, you wouldn't believe it, but the name of this show is Back on the Agenda. So you might remember we went with Football Fountain over backroom banter, and I thought that was it. But suddenly, out of nowhere, we've had another option thrown up. One of our listeners has suggested that this show should be called Collie Waffle. Not bad, you'd have to say. But the question is, can we seriously change again? Well, absolutely we can change again. It was, it was Stephen Riley on an uh, absolute power trip to get Football Fountain over the line in the first place. And disastrous name, if you ask me. And I got that feedback strongly when I got home that night that, what are you doing with the name Football Fountain? It's uh, just no good at all. Um, so I'm, I'm more than happy to reopen up this debate around the name. I actually don't mind shifting the name every week. Why not? It's... Uh, but I think yeah, the new option's quite quite impressive. I'm still a backroom banter kind of guy, um, so that'll that'll get my vote. But uh, I think Rolls has been uh, been got a pretty good story on how uh, he came about this new this new candidate for the podcast name. Well, firstly, I've never heard anything more ridiculous than changing the name every week, every so week. that no one could find us. <laughs> I, I mean, they're having enough trouble as it is. I, I know we're compelling, but um, uh, every week a change name of change, but. Um, uh, it is true that uh, in our very short existence that we've, we've, um, there's a, a devoted following and it's growing rapidly. One of, the, one of, the, uh, one of our dedicated listeners, um, who happens to be a Hawthorne supporter as it happens, but which tells you the, the breadth of the topics that we cover, that we appeal to all football fans. We're an eclectic uh, mixed crowd. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, someone who, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, someone very close to came up with the idea of collie waffle, and uh, being a man of the people, I thought I'd put it out there. I, so I definitely I think prefer collie waffle over football fountain, but I'm not going to sway the audience. But I was, I was a bit more intrigued by collie waffle, definitely more so than football fountain. There, there's only one concern I have, and I will give it. I want to say thank you to that 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 uh, dedicated listener, and and I will add that the uh, the mighty Jeff Walsh. Uh, football manager at Collingwood is also an avid listener. He he asked me to reference him on the on the show this week because of his strong support for us. But um, uh, my one concern is that uh, some of our listeners, uh, perhaps of a certain generation, uh, certain, um, are unaware of what a poly waffle is. Now it could be that our masterful producer, the Wizard, uh, may be one of those who. Uh, He's a little bit too... He's just out of nappy, so perhaps we can excuse him. But he didn't know what a polywaffle was. But if you marry the two things, Collingwood and waffle, which I think we're particularly good at, then I think it's, it's a fine, fine title. And the other thing that sums up a polywaffle is it's, uh, it's look-alike, Riles. And are you saying that this podcast is somewhat looking like a polywaffle? Is that correct? Is that a reference to Caddyshack? <laughs> Potentially. And the One pool of the great, scene? Very fine flick, Caddyshack. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say that the wizard um, is a vital part of this team, uh, Adam and Wags, but uh, he has his, his own wizard's hat. 
uh, which I think we might uh, get a picture of and send it out on social. But uh, he's he's pushing the buttons and twirling the knobs here with uh, a wizard's hat on. So that tells you a little bit about how loose uh, this this uh, podcast is. Very loose. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have another Twitter poll. And this time, Magpie Army, I can assure you, I promise, the winner of the poll will be the new name, or maybe the not new name, if Football Fountain gets up, but I've got my doubts about that. So the winner of the poll will be the name of this podcast, and that will be that. So the three contenders we're going to put up on Twitter are Football Fountain, Backroom Banter, and the late charger from two deep, one wide at the 400, Collie Waffle. So cast your vote, because every vote will count. And once this is done, that's it. This podcast will be named once and for all. Okay, so it's time now to move to our footy issues. We always love to have a look at some issues from inside the footy world, inside the footy bubble. And now we've actually got some real footy to talk about. Thursday versus Friday from a broadcast perspective. What would you like to have a chat about? I think it's a bit more of a broader discussion, Adam, just around, it's probably more Riles' territory, so I'm probably treading on his toes here, but looking back on Thursday or or reflecting on a a low-scoring close encounter which keeps viewers glued to the TV for the whole game, I know... Uh, walking away from our game on Thursday night, obviously, it didn't get the, the greatest reviews as a spectacle, but it was an extremely close and pressured game late, um, which would have kept the audience engaged. And then you, you fast forward to Friday night, Riles, and uh, by half time, yeah, there's more goals kicked, commentators and the Twitter spheres erupting with, oh, fan- fantastic, what a great game. There's been more goals kicked, happy days, but then halfway through the third quarter, the game was over. Geelong were, were blowing Hawthorne away. Um, which no doubt meant the neutral supporter started, I guess, looking elsewhere. So I guess the, the broader question mm. from a broadcasting perspective, would they prefer a tight arm wrestle, less goals, but a really tight finish at the end over a shootout like Friday night where maybe the game's tight till half time, but then one team blows the other team away in the second half and potentially you start losing viewers halfway through the third quarter? Like where, where do you see the broadcaster? I think, in this, I think there's in a couple of... Um things to discuss there. One is I think the network or networks who cover the game want one goal in it at three-quarter time. That, that's, a, that's an absolute ratings winner. They retain every viewer. Um, and I, but I think at times their own commentators, perhaps who, who get a little nostalgic, want the game to be different and talk it down. I think more generally we're very quick to eat our own to condemn the game. Um, but from a broadcast perspective... Uh, I think Seven were thrilled um, uh, to have the game so close and retain the the biggest Thursday night te- television audience in history, stayed at the very last second. Um, so th- that was a great fillip for them. I think the fact it was five goals to five goals was a slight disappointment to them because every goal is an ad break, you know, is followed by an ad break, and uh, um, in this this very different odd season. Um, each goal now has an extra 15 seconds um, attached to the break in order for them to get a second plug or add in. Uh, and now, So there was only 10 opportunities in the entire match. Um, I think there were probably 10 in the first quarter down at Cadenia Park or GMHPA Stadium. But um, they, tight games, the, the, I suppose it's, it's 
the aesthetic quality is what we're talking about of the football that we're watching as opposed to the interest that's retained in it by the narrowness of the result or the margin at any point in the game. And I think broadcasters will happily sacrifice a little bit of the aesthetic quality for re interest. But on this, this, I guess, leads me to my next point. Why do low-scoring games get such a bad reputation? Why are they automatically assumed to be poor games if there's no goals kicked? Because, I mean, if a team kicks 15 goals but get six or seven Joe the Gooses in the goal square, and there's nothing spectacular about that, there's no contest in the game, why does a low-scoring game automatically get associated with a poor game and a high-scoring game automatically get associated with being a great spectacle? Mm. Like goals is one part of the game. Like there's some unbelievable contests late in the game of of our game on Thursday, which mm. which were exciting in themselves. They weren't goals. I, th I think of Chris Main sliding back from a wing to, to spoil the ball through for a behind, which was an unbelievable effort, but that's not a goal. Uh, look at... I know you refer to, to heavily the 05-06 grand finals. Mm. Like, just because they're low scoring, does that make them less of a spectacle? Why does, and, and why does goals make a game a good spectacle? I'd, I've never understood that. Yeah, I, I, normally, I, I share your view on that. I, I just can't... Uh, I think if you love the game, you, you, there's, there's so much to love about it. And yes, goals are just, a, 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 in some ways, byproducts of very good play. All that precedes them, in a particular passage, might be outstanding. And you, you should be appreciating that as much as the goal, that, that the end result of all that play. Uh, and I, I, I think generally fans do love acts of bravery, and, but it, it is difficult at times to, let's, let's talk about Chris Mayne, for instance, to track him on screen and see that and appreciate it in the you can live. Uh, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the differences between the live experience at the moment and uh, and broadcast experience a bit later. But, um, yeah, I, some of the greatest games that I can recall, uh, I, I loved the preliminary final between GWS and the Bulldogs in 17. That was as intense. Everything mattered. It, it was as if every mistake, every act could have a bearing on the outcome. That, to me, is riveting. Uh, and it's got nothing to do with goals, as much as I like seeing them kicked. That was, that was one of the better games I've seen. And I think it was 2016, Riles. Sorry to correct you. Uh, have I got that incorrect? Yes. Doggies went on to win the flag, 2016. Yeah, I have. I'm, I'm a year <laughs> out. Apologies. But no, I don't, didn't mean to call you off on that. But I agree, that was a fantastic game of football. And the goals kicked were top shelf, but it wasn't overly high scoring. And I even look at the... 2011 prelim Collingwood Hawthorne mm. another low scoring affair but that last quarter maybe because I was involved in the game but that last quarter has got to be one of the best quarters of football I've ever seen because mm. every moment was huge like Buddy kicks a goal from the boundary line Luke Hodge taking hangers just stoppages and huge pressure just every moment was huge in the game mm. but it wasn't a high scoring game I think mm. with low scoring comes a I think there's an extra edge to the game and, and every goal means more so it's celebrated more, but I, yeah. I don't think we should be associating low scoring all the time with just writing off the game as being a poor game and, and vice versa. I think each game's got to be treated on its merit and I think both Collingwood and Richmond kind of hit in really hard. It was, it was the intensity of that game for off a break like we had, mm. it shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah. Oh, I love the counterpoint between attack and defence. I love teams that will try to defeat defence by attacking. There's been a couple... Uh, in my, in my memory, who really did it in an exaggerated way, and that was Malcolm Blight's Geelong, back in started in '89 and onwards, where it was it, Blighty's mantra was, "Yeah, if they kick twenty, we'll kick twenty-one," 
and uh, it was breathtaking in its difference. Um, unfortunately, they never got there to change the game, as I'm convinced they would have if they had actually managed to win a flag because it would have led other coaches to adopt the similar philosophy. But then Geelong, under Mark Thompson, again, produced a game where they refused to go lateral, come at the game the whole time you know, in a direct way. Um, they had a guy called Gary Ablett, you know, about to reach his peak at that time was almost untackable. No one could get hold of him. But, but they played a, a brilliant offensive game, um, but it was married to uh, uh, a lot of big bodies around the contest, Joel Corey, Jimmy Bartell, those types. Um, so I do, like, I do like to see teams uh, try to defeat defence with attack, but uh, I think we've got to appreciate both sides of the, of the equation. Ah, yes. Thank you, boys. Very intriguing discussion, as always. Now, it's time for our second topic of this mighty podcast, and that's to reflect on the round two game day experience. Riles, I want to start with you. What did you make of the game day experience with the cardboard cutouts, the small crowd in Adelaide? It was a real mixed bag across the board, wasn't it? Uh, Yes, it was. I thought, on the whole, uh, the experience was very good. I mean, given that most people saw it from their lounge rooms, um, very few, only a handful across the nation really got to see or across a number of states got to see it live. Uh, the live experience is very different to the broadcast experience um, as uh, we all discovered um, on Thursday night where we walked into silent stadiums, uh, you know, echoing to the crawls of seagulls and um, we were temperature checked as we walked in, we were answering questions about our health and um, we are all we're operating with restrictions that that um, highly unusual uh, and then we sat there, wags sort of close to the boundary, we were on the bench but um, hearing nothing but a few players geeing each other up, giving each other encouragement. Um, I got home to watch the whole thing again and see the digital enhancements, the flags, which we, we obviously couldn't see, the crowd noise. Um, Seven, who covered our game, um, shot the whole thing a lot tighter. Um, normally they would have a sort of more panoramic, wide-angled view of the, of the game. They narrowed that right down to, to focus um, as much as they could on, on the contest. Uh, they lowered camera angles or went extremely high to look down on the play so that you didn't get as many um, images of empty second tier and third tiers of state of grandstands. Um, it was f- the best seat in the house, in my view, right now, is actually at home. Um, but you do miss things uh, still by not being there, like Chris Main's effort and, and the ability to see that the, the entire, an entire passage of play unfold. Wags? I think you're a pretty impressive one-man cheer squad behind the, the bench rails. <laughs> you, you're making the noise of about 70,000 during the last five minutes, which was, which was fantastic to see. But, yeah, it's, it's still – I think we spoke about it last week. It just still doesn't feel right going to the game. You walk out onto the ground to, to get everything set up on the bench and you could hear a, hear a pin drop. It was just so eerie and quiet, adding to the fact it was freezing cold and just a super still night. It just – added to the eeriness, came out after halftime, there was a fog over, <laughs> over the ground. It's just, it was so surreal. Um, but for us, I guess, who were involved in the game, 
you, you quickly switch into game mode while it's happening. I think mm. the only time I really checked myself was I think I think Billy Elliott went for a mark in the Ford 50, which I thought was a mark and wasn't paid, and I might have let out a rather loud bit of feedback to the umpires and when it bounced back off the Great Southern Stand and came back to me, I thought, oh, okay, I better tone it down a little bit because um, usually there's 70,000 people so that just gets lost in the wash. But um, So you do got to check yourself sometimes because a lot of things are being heard. Um, but, yeah, very strange experience. But I, I agree, going back and watching the other games over the weekend, the way they were shot, the subtle crowd noise, um, I guess I think they're actually focused on the game a lot more than, I guess, some of the more exterior stuff I think that the ana analysis of the game was much better because that's what they really had to focus on as opposed to some of the other things that sometimes transpire but I thought the whole viewing experience was pretty good on TV mm -hmm. um, obviously Fox did it differently to Channel 7 I actually really like the uh, the Fox Air camera angle I think it's good not good as good live during the play because you're you're so conditioned to watching the game through the I guess that cam 2 perspective but for replays for stoppage setups for for seeing the game as a whole and from a different perspective, that Fox Air was was really cool, I mm. thought, and something that was a really good addition. But that's the thing. Uh, it's, it's breeding some innovation, which I think is important. But looking at the um, showdown on Saturday night, just even 2,000 people there just watching the pregame coming from where we have gave me chills, like mm. watching Port run out and the Crows run out and the supporters singing and dancing and then the Never Tear Us Apart, even with such so few people, just hearing crowd mm. was was a buzz and just the authenticity of the support during the game. Like you hear a ball or you hear a rumbling because there's a poor decision or someone's out the back and you can hear the crowd build. You could even you could get that with 2,000 people, mm. even though it was only small. It was, it was like watching the old Waffle Games from back in my Perth days. Like the East Perth crowd used to make a hell of a racket with only 2,000 people. So yeah. just, to, just how unique our supporters are and the nuances of the game and how, how conditioned our supporters are to almost commentate the games through their noises they make. It just, it's so clear that that's missing, even yeah. with the, the fake audio. But that Adelaide game was awesome to watch. It's just a pity it blew out early and it wasn't tight because that would have just added more to the spectacle. But it was just, just shows the importance of supporters mm -hmm. once again to the game, even in such few numbers. Time now to have a look at what we observed in round two in terms of the game trends. And well, our man Marcus Wagner, he's a bit of a Nostradamus because he told us last week how much defence has taken over since 2012, when a lot of teams were elite in attack, not so much in defence, and how it's flipped around since then. And of course, the Pies and the Tigers put on an absolute defensive show. 5 6 36 each was the score. Let's start with you, Vargs. What did you observe? Well, Adam, I was actually hoping uh, for a bit more uh, a bump up in the scoring rate, which was another trend I thought we'd experience in 2020. Obviously, the defensive trends is established now in AFL, but uh, given the shorter quarters, I thought we'd see a bit of a spike in, in the scoring rate, um, which we did actually see, uh, even including the Thursday night game where only 72 points were scored. Um, we have seen a spike in, in the scoring rate, just one game sample size from round two. Um, but looking back at back at the other years, I think on the couch did this last night, but they took into account the minutes played or the, the length of the quarters, which you can't do with that extra 15 seconds for a goal. So if you just look at 16 minutes of live play in 2020 versus 20 minutes of live play for the previous years, uh, the scoring rate this year has gone up by uh, pro rata basis three points. 
so not massive, but it's a, it's gone up um, on each of the years from the previous three. So that's the trend early usually is scoring is higher in the earlier rounds, but now we're in the depths of winter, scoring does tend to dry up a bit. But I think that spike in or slight spike in scoring rate I think will be consistent all the way through. I think the other thing we discussed, which which Riles kind of called me on, but it was worth observing, was the, the momentum in the games. Um, and we saw plenty of plenty of momentum swings on the weekend, which I think is exciting. But you looked at Port's momentum was only one way. They kicked, for what, at one stage, they kicked nine goals in a row. Um, Melbourne game versus Carlton is the definition of momentum swing. Uh, Melbourne kicked the, the first seven um, to get to a 42-point lead, and Carlton clawed them back. So massive momentum swing in that game. Geelong and Gold Coast both kicked six goals in a row in their games. Uh, North Melbourne kicked five goals in a row in their game. So mm-hmm. the ability to, to make the most of your momentum, I think, is going to be pivotal in 2020. And uh, we, we only saw four teams on the weekend not kick three goals in a row at any stage in their game. That was Adelaide, the Giants, Sydney and West Coast. So there's five losing teams that in one – or five losing or drawing teams that at one point in the game had kicked three goals in a row. So that's showing that there's there are these flows in momentum, um, and those momentum swings and those goal streaks are increasing in in their I guess potency. So, in 2019, the goal streak of three plus goals would probably average out at about a four goal goal streak. Whereas, yeah, again, small sample size for this year, those goal streaks are up to 4.3. So. People are making their, or teams are making the most of their momentum, which um, hopefully continues because it makes for an exciting game, particularly if it's tight. But obviously, with the Port game, Geelong game, and, and the Gold Coast game, to a certain extent, they turn into blowouts late with those goal streaks. But I think, yeah, the momentum and scoring rate take our game out from Thursday night, and you would have had a much more significant spike in the scoring rate, which I think's what we're going to see a bit more. The thing. Again, the thing we touched on last week was the conditions at the MCG. We, we kind of predicted that it would be a really dour, sloppy affair because of the conditions at the MCG. And there's a reason they don't play too many night games at the MCG through winter is exactly what we saw on Thursday night. It was, it's really, it's probably a hard one to see on TV, Riles, but the conditions were very, very difficult for the players. The, yeah. the ground's in yeah. immaculate condition and there's just a layer of water on the ground the whole time. And it's yeah. not... It doesn't seep into the ground like a raining day. It just sits on top the whole game. Mm. And it made it really, really hard to control the footy. And that, no doubt, contributed to the, the low scoring. And I know Dimmer Hardwick referenced that in his presser after the game, that it's it was really difficult conditions. Yeah. So that's got to be taken into account. Um, Can I ask you a scoring. question, therefore? Of course. So if you're playing... You're in the four teams playing in Queensland for six weeks, or thereabouts, in very different conditions... Uh, uh, drier conditions, um, might we see a, a diversity between the scoring patterns up there and those in the, particularly at the G, where there's going to be a lot of dew. Basically, they'll be wet weather games unless they're played in the middle of the day and the sun's been able to get hold of the, you know, uh, to dry up the, the dew. But it might be that there'll be, uh, the, is it conceivable that they could be scoring on average two or three goals a game more? In the, or collectively in those games, then we'll see it out of an MCG game, for instance, in the foreseeable future. Well, well definitely the day games in Queensland because they're pristine conditions like the Brisbane Fremantle yeah. game. That You won't get better conditions than that. But Gold Coast is quite similar. Um, you get to twilight into night games on the Gold Coast and it is incredibly slippery mm. and dewy. And I think that's that had a massive part to play in the Gold Coast-West Coast game. West Coast aren't 
haven't trained up in those conditions and, and clearly that had an impact on the game. Gold Coast spent the last, last well, the whole pre-season training in those conditions. So it, it does have an impact, but I think they'll get used to it. But yeah, night games on the, on the Gold Coast have a very similar kind yeah. of feel to them as those night games at the MCG. Well, Different, much warmer, but really, really slippery conditions. What about, is a question that probably doesn't have an answer, but if, and it relates to the shortness of the quarters, which is, we know is only a, a, a temporary thing. Hopefully not. Uh, well, yes, Stephen. if you listen to the first episode, of course, there's a persuasive case for... It's a very strong <laughs> for, case for shortened quarters in the 26-round season, but just to rehash it again. If, if we'd been playing to a 20-plus time on quarter on Thursday night, given the momentum Collingwood had in the first quarter, we've kicked four... Uh, and we were coming hard late in that quarter. Do you think if we'd had another couple of minutes, we might have been able to really gap the game? That actually the shorter quarter halted our momentum in that case. Um, I mean, it's, it's something that's hard, we'll never know. But I, I do wonder if we'd had a, an extra three or four minutes, uh, we might have been able to put a bigger gap on the game. Million dollar question, S. Riley. But mm. I think you'll find, particularly against Richmond as the opposition, they have a propensity to, to grind teams out. So I yeah. think they would be would have been stronger at the end of quarters because that's that's their style. They they break teams down and when you can't maintain the pressure against Richmond, they tend to break you late in quarters and kick yeah. kick goals in a hurry. So uh, who knows? 20, yeah. We're kind of wishing the 2018 grand final was only a 16-minute plus time on quarter because then West Coast wouldn't have kicked the last two goals. We would have gone in five goals up at quarter time. So yeah. um, you'll never know. No. Um, but... I think momentum's hard to sustain um, mm. and teams tend to, I guess, pick you apart. Coaches' boxes, dynamics, they're, they're looking at the game. They tend to tend to be able to pull a lever that, that slows or stifles your momentum. So who knows? But playing Richmond, I was probably happy that the siren went early because I know they're very good late in quarters. Yeah, yeah, fair point. There you go. Well, let's see what happens this weekend. A whole new round of footy and who knows, we might have a two goals to two. We might have a good old-fashioned shootout. You just never know, do you? That's why we love this great game. It can throw up anything. Now, of course, this weekend, the Mighty Pies take on St Kilda. It's a 4.35 game at the MCG. A Saturday twilight. We'll all be watching on our TV screens. This one is on Fox Footy exclusively. Well, it's also on the AFL app if you want to watch it there, to be honest. But tune in on Fox Footy or the AFL app and watch the Mighty Pies take on the Saints. St Kilda, of course, coming off a very impressive win over the Western Bulldogs last weekend in the new Sunday night time slot. Riles, I'll start with you. What are you expecting from this game between the Pies and the Saints on Saturday? Clearly a different side to the Richmond side that in, in structure to, that we faced last week. Um, they've Obviously, they're running with two ruckmen, Paddy Ryder and Marshall. Um, they've introduced a lot of speed, and it seems as if they've made a priority of moving the ball on, uh, not not quite in the Richmond style, as in sort of manic um, speed and surge, but perhaps more of a quick kick, break up the play, then go. But but it seems that they want to uh, keep the ball moving. They don't want to be trapped in their back half for too long. Wax, what are your what are your thoughts on on how we might uh, what sort of St Kilda we're going to confront? They've been been very impressive. The Saints, from what I've seen in the first, not only the first game, I know they got done in the first game, but their first half against North was was really impressive. North managed to grind them out late in that game. Um, 
But looking at them, they've they're definitely got an offensive bent. Uh, they're playing with a bit more freedom now. And you can see that in their scoring pattern and ball movement from the back half. And we spoke about that in, in game trends last week is sides potentially looking to bounce a bit harder from, from the back line to space in front of the ball. And they're, they're doing that better than anyone in the comp at the moment. So very fluid ball movement. Uh, they're scoring well. I think round one, they're, they're a bit inefficient in front of goals. And they tidy that right up against uh, the doggies, kicking very straight. I think they kick 14-4 which is a, a huge impact on the game. They brought in that, some outside speed with Hill and, uh, and even Jones. He's looking really strong inside. But um, you're right about the, the two rucks. They had 20 hitouts to advantage uh, on Sunday night, which is a, a monstrous number and giving their mids first use, which you have to do against the doggies because their midfield's so strong in and around the ball. But yeah, we're going to have a, a fair, fair challenge ahead of us. Um, Maxi King up front's looking looking strong, and if he starts starts plucking a few of those aerials, he he looks like he's going to be a star player. Um, obviously, got the resting ruckman down there. Membry's been a, a good player for a long time, so we're definitely going to have our work cut out. And yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully we get the game on our terms for for longer, and we uh, we can put some scoreboard pressure on. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm actually looking forward to seeing Darcy Cameron be you know, take some take a, a a role against either Ryder or Marshall and and show us what he's got in the ruck. I think he, he was very good in, on debut for us last Thursday night. I thought in really wet conditions that his reputation as being a marking player um, was bore, born out. Um, I think he took eight, five or six of which, or three or four of which were contested. So I think he's, um, that was a, in those conditions, I thought that was a very good performance from him. But uh, um, his ability to give Brody a chop out uh, around the ground in the ruck, I think, might be seen. We might see how valuable that that could become for us against two big boys. Uh, last week, of course, it was Soldo one out. Well, there you have it. Another mighty fine podcast wraps up with some commentary there from Stephen Riley and Marcus Wagner, our main protagonists on this one. And that's another episode. That is episode three, done and dusted. Right now, this podcast is still called Football Fountain. But by next week, by golly, it could be anything. It could even be Collie Waffle. Let's wait and see what our Twitter poll throws up because this time we're going to listen, we're going to watch, we're going to see what comes up, and that's going to be that. But we're loving bringing this podcast to you. Very much hope you're enjoying listening. We'll catch you next week. Thanks, Adam. Good on you, Mick Nicol. Thank you for listening. We're now on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So jump on there and give us a follow on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you feel like it, give us a review. Thanks, heaps. Catch you next week.